it, but God, would you begin to show us what we're leaving on the table, what could be happening in our community, in our lives, in this building tonight. God, blow our minds, blow out all of the hindrances to the creative possibilities of what you could be released to do in our midst, even in the midst of worship tonight. God, we say, let all the resistance to the amazing capacity of the Holy Spirit, let all the resistance, let all the limitations be removed from us tonight. God, we say in the name of Jesus, bring us into a new realm of expectation, a new realm of hope and faith that releases your hand to work, oh God, beyond our imagination today, beyond what we could hope for, beyond what we could even think, Lord, bring us into the possibilities tonight. Come on, let's worship him. Let me tell you what I'm seeing in the spirit. I feel like we are approaching days when there's coming such an exaltation, such a pure manifestation of worship that it literally, I see this, this piercing of worship that goes straight up into the heavens and it like it breaks through and suddenly I see this white tunnel that just begins to fall like this channel of mist. And as it hits the earth, it's like dry ice that's, that's billowing out of a bucket. And it's just rolling along the ground. And as it moves out in, a, in concentric waves, it just begins to decimate and break every expression of the kingdom of darkness. And there's a consuming light and life and knowledge of God. They're just spilling out and spilling out and spilling out. And with each inch and with each foot and with each mile, it just is consuming the land with the knowledge of the glory of God. But it's fueled. It's fueled at its core by an exaltation that gives him the glory to his name. Oh, God. As a church, we are on a trajectory towards something that has been prophesied in this region, spoken over this body, Ward over, the enemy is steadfastly resisted, but that's not really the issue. The issue is a people coming into a place to realize a manifestation of his glory. And I'm, I'm reminded again of the prophetic word that Bob Jones gave me before I came here. He said that there's a certain spirit rising up against this church, against the destiny of this region. And that kind of spirit, it's not, it's not limited to a locality like this. But I'm telling you, globally, 
There is there are churches coming into a stature of a fullness of the Lord, and you're going to see a sequence of breakthrough in regions all across the earth as churches come into a fullness of the knowledge and the stature of Christ, and there's a manifestation of intercession and worship and governmental decrees that begin to cause a cascading effect. And what's going to happen is the spirits, the darkness that's responsible for holding the church in check are not going to be able to do it. They're going to have to retreat from entire regions because of the breakout of the Spirit of God. We are on the verge of just such a breakout. And the difference between the breakout and the not breakout is not the enemy. It's not principalities and powers. It's the fullness of the stature of the people. For 2,000 years, the church has been praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are approaching nearer and nearer to a day of ultimate convergence when there is a manifestation of a generation of a people who have come into the full stature. See, revival is not God doing something, but us coming into the fullness of destiny where the seed that was put inside of you when you became born again comes to the fullness comes to completeness whether you suddenly and finally realize who he made you to be then every place on which your foot shall tread you will have it you will own it and no weapon formed against you will prosper hallelujah father we thank you for the destiny that you've given us And for the knowledge of the truth that says the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It is inevitable. It is incontroversial. It is going to happen. And we will be able to say, like William Booth said, I'm not waiting for a revival. I am a revival. You know what? We may not right now all be able to say that, but it is becoming increasingly the reality. Uh, we have been we have been experimenting. We have been venturing week after week after week after week, and uh, there's coming a breakthrough of magnitude you you couldn't even imagine. I thought it was significant last night when Mark talked about the whole thing about breaking the sound barrier. You know, um, that ties into so many things. A, the turbulence part, which I'm going to refer to in a second. But but B, you know, we've been talking about this. I've been saying, listen, the victory is near you. Release with your mouth. Believe with your heart, but release with your mouth. That when the sons of God are people who realize that the nature that they've been given for, from God is to establish things through sound. And the sound barrier 
is the inability for you to bring the fullness of your sound to bear on your circumstances. That's the sound barrier. And all the resistance and all the enemy strategy are to keep you locked up so that you can't fully release your sound. And you are coming increasingly to that sound barrier. You're going to break the sound barrier. But what, what, what comes? What, there's increasing turbulence, increasing resistance. But I'm telling you, if you believe, you're going to break through. You're going to break through and find new levels of victory. So great, man. Looking so exciting. Hallelujah. But we've got Mark DuPont here, and I'm going to introduce him in a minute. We're going to take an offering in just a couple minutes here. But, you know, I was thinking, what role is... We, we may do something different in the future, but what role is he playing right now? Let me tell you. I often think about this because when we do what we did tonight in worship, we're not just singing songs. We're actually looking for a breakthrough, a corporate breakthrough in the Spirit. And we're venturing, we're penetrating into something deeper and deeper and deeper. And our capacity to do that is by the acquired skills and faith and protocols of worship. But, but it's like a, an athlete, you know, a pole vaulter who, you know, he's eating right. You know, he's eating the, you know, the right diet. He's, he's sleeping He's exercising, he's going to the weight room, and then he's practicing the technique. And in an optimum moment, in when all of these factors kind of work together perfectly, he's likely to get a personal best. You know what I mean? It's like the personal best is not based on one of those factors. Well, I ate my Wheaties this morning, or I went to the gym three times this week, or, you know, I just planted that pole just right. It is a convergence of all those factors. Similarly, there's a breakthrough coming for a body in a region. It's not necessarily related to just one body, but for the churches of a region. But there are, there are dynamics that are coming together that are going to make for a breakthrough in this region. We may not understand all the factors. We may not understand, you know, which part eating right plays and, and, and all of the different disciplines that you as individuals and all the parts we need to do as loving one another and blessing one another and all the technique of intercession and worship and the high praises and the, and the, the entering the Holy Holy. All those things are going to come to play. All of them have a part to do with this, but the breakthrough is inevitable. Now, what, what Mark is doing, I believe he's speaking to essential issues. You know, like a new coach comes in and says to a pole vaulter, you know, if what you, you're losing so much power right here. If you would just stop doing this, if we just shift this in you and align that and take away that, all of a sudden, what you already have is going to take you further. And so that's what we're believing for on, on this trip. Last night, and those of you that were here last night and tonight, you finish, you know, whether you realize it or not, we live at one level in the spirit. When we go to revival meetings or, or things, something we're brought up a little bit higher. And in the one night, we don't go back to our normal living level. We, we stay a little bit higher on the mountain than... Than, uh, uh, than where we normally would be. And then the next night, we, we go into something else. Your faith is strengthened, rejuvenated. Things that are blurry start to become real. 
And, you know, with consecutive meetings, this is the reason why they did tent meetings for weeks at a time, is people kept being brought to another plateau, another level of faith. Uh, What was hidden, what was sort of in the back of their being was brought forward, and it allowed them to touch things they didn't otherwise touch. And so tomorrow is going to be your best opportunity for shifts, breakthroughs in your life. So consecutive meetings, these are very critical. That's why God did feasts. Come away from your life for a week at a time and give yourself to worship and service of the King. Amen? All right, Mark, it's been delightful so far. Come and release your gift, your heart. You know, we one of the songs we sang tonight was... Um, continued had the line over and over again, God reigns. And if you don't understand that God is a God of history and he allows within certain limitations mankind to run its course in preparation for a bride to be prepared for his son Jesus, we don't understand the longevity of the plans of God thousands of years. It's really hard to put that in perspective when we see all the chaos, all the problems, all the issues going on in life. But if you think about this, over the last especially 30 years, as there's been so many nations with a lot of, um, let's just say, interesting people at the helm of those nations, it's absolutely a miracle that an atomic bomb hasn't gone off, that we haven't had some form of nuclear warfare going on. That's just the grace of God, that God keeps the nations at a leash. And a lot of times it seems like evil is on a rampage and there is a growing evil in the world, a growing amount of lawlessness. But even that, God is using that to just prepare a greater and greater hunger for the reality of his goodness. Last summer I uh, wrote a blog. It's on our website. And let me preface what I'm about to say is uh, I I think it's strange when uh, preachers and teachers and prophets and pathetics and everything else when they take their cues from Hollywood and modern media. (laughs) I I don't quite understand that. But I I did refer last summer to something uh, out of uh, Hollywood, as it were, that over the last two years, uh, especially a year and a half ago, two of the best-selling movies were Dunkirk and The Darkest Hour. And if you saw those two movies, both of them were about the same exact time frame in the history of England. And for those of us in North America, it's hard to put this into perspective, but about that time frame, the early 1940s, uh, England was really on the verge of just not being overwhelmed by Nazi Germany, but being destroyed, their whole way of life. And there was devastation, especially in London, many of the manufacturing cities, they were being bombed heavily. And England actually came very, very close to losing the war. And as they were really getting going in things, as the name of that movie about Churchill coming into office, it was a very, very dark hour for Britain. And at that time is when I think it was 337,000 British troops were stranded and basically almost surrounded by the Nazis at Dunkirk and, uh, you know, or in Europe. And they were on the ocean there, but they were surrounded on three sides, and the Nazis were pressing in. 
And England had not, they were in a hurry to rebuild their naval and their army and everything else, but they did not have the resources to go and rescue them. They did not have the troops to send in. And many of the political leaders were saying, we're just going to have to surrender these 337,000 men, not knowing what their fate was going to be. It was a very, very dark time. And Churchill came to power at that time through very, uh, you know, nobody thought it was really going to happen. And when I talk about Churchill, a lot of times people talk about Churchill almost as if he was, uh, you know, like Elijah the prophet. Uh, Churchill was a believer of God, and he did actually believe that he got dreams and revelations from God that gave him strategy. But he was far from a perfect man. Churchill, unfortunately, was a bit of a racist. In fact, in some ways, very much of a racist. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was a man for that hour. Churchill was very, very, very unpopular in Britain at that time. And you have to understand that in Europe and in Britain, they were just on the heels of World War I, what many people had called the greatest war because the devastation of life had just been so horrific. Some nine million people in Europe died in that war. Britain alone had lost over 700,000 of their young men in that war. And even, you know, some 10, 15 years later, going into the 1940s, they just still emotionally and financially are reeling from the effects of that. But starting in the early 30s, Churchill was just in relentless in his call for England to rebuild its military, to rebuild its naval warfare apparatus, to really gear up for war because he kept saying there is going to be war because he was almost the lone voice in leadership at that time or in political circles that was saying Hitler is going to go to war against us. And many of the politicians of his time, including Neville Chamberlain, who was the prime minister who preceded um, Churchill, he was a good man, but he kept thinking, we can talk our way out of this. We can negotiate our way out of this. And it was Neville Chamberlain who championed this phrase, peace in our time. And actually, when Neville Chamberlain signed his last treaty with Hitler, just hours later, it was recorded that Hitler and his head guys were laughing behind the scenes, laughing at uh, Chamberlain because they knew what they were up to. But Churchill was this lone voice and he was very unpopular. He was a brusque man. He was ruthless in how he dealt with people. But he saw the future, but he also believed thoroughly in Britain. And so through an amazing chain of events, he ends up becoming prime minister. But on the heart of everybody is how are we going to save these 337,000 troops? Or are we just going to lose them? And he came up with this idea of doing something that no one had ever considered, of using ordinary men and women. And if you've seen the movie Dunkirk, it's more of a documentary than a, a, a movie, or a Hollywoodized movie anyway. But they had over 800 boats, and some of them were naval boats, but the vast majority of them, over 700 of them, were sailing boats, small fishing boats, pleasure boats owned by everyday men and women that during those six, seven days, went back and forth across the channel. 
and they rescued almost all of them of those 337,000 men that everybody thought they were going to lose. And there's a couple of lessons there for us. One, that we can think, we can look at what's happening around us culturally, governmentally, politically, and all the problems going on, and things can appear so dark, but sometimes out of very unlikely quarters, out of very unlikely ways, God raises up a hero for the hour. You know, Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, and he said to the Gentiles, that's just, it's laughable. Because in Paul's day, everybody realized it was only the worst sort of criminals that had committed the most heinous crimes that were actually crucified. They actually had other forms of capital punishment that were not nearly as brutal. They saved crucifixion for the very worst sort of offenders. So to publicly go and say at that time that that man crucified Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Messiah, and he was resurrected, it, it was just laughable to people. And we're in a day and age where not just the values of Christ, but the person of Christ is increasingly being mocked, ridiculed, laughed at, despised, all of that. But in the midst of that, there's a hero in the, in the future that's rising up to the nations. But secondly, that, you know, we, we've got this problem in the body of Christ that we keep looking for another hero. And the fact is, God wants to pour his spirit out upon everyday men and women. And just as those 337,000 troops that most people thought were lost were rescued by everyday men and women that had small fishing boats, pleasure boats, yacht, small sailing boats and everything, I believe so much of what God is going to be happening in the future is everyday men and women in the body of Christ filled with the spirit moving in a, just an incredible freedom of the Lord. I'm glad you're excited. Turn to the person next to you and say, I know it's difficult, but try not to look quite as excited as you do right now. And uh, it, it is an amazing time we're coming into, and here in Edmonton and Spruce Grove, I, I think God's up to something amazing with you all. Paul uh, talked about a lot of things. He wrote and taught and trained on so many different things, everything from the spiritual gifts to finances to healthy church leadership. But uh, Paul also talked a certain amount about mysteries. And we think about mysteries, you know, is this something sketchy or shaky or what's he talking about? But he was talking about the, the thousands of years of mysteries that the people of God got glimpses of that they didn't understand that were unfolding in his day and age with the apostolic church. And one of the mysteries, one of the primary mysteries Paul talked about, there were three of them, was what could be called the mystery of righteousness. That when a person turns from destructive behavior, begins to walk in the ways of God with the Spirit of God, there comes a freedom to say no, a growing freedom to say no to temptation and alive to Christ and a cleansed conscience and the freedom of walking in that. But in contrast to that, he also talked about the mystery of lawlessness, which is just the opposite. When a person gives them over to sin, as in destructive behavior, they become in bondage with that to the point that the conscience could become seared and just open up to all sorts of evil that they might never have imagined just a few years before. When you read about just crazy things like people going ballistic and you know, all the stuff that goes on, you know, most of the people who do those things never started off thinking, I'm going to do this, but over a period of time, uh, the, because of sin and giving themselves over to it, the heart becomes hardened, the, the conscience becomes seared, 
and all of a sudden there's no discerning anymore between right and wrong. In fact, you get to the point where people will call good evil and call evil good. But there was one more mystery he talked about, and that is the mystery of Christ in us. The mystery of Emmanuel, the very presence of God dwelling within us. I want to read to you just a few verses out of uh, Colossians chapter 1, and starting verse 26, Paul said, The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The mystery of the glory of God's riches of Christ in you, the hope of glory. We think of salvation as once we were lost, now we're found. Once maybe we were going to hell, now we're going to heaven. But that's not really the depths of the kingdom of the gospel. The power of what Jesus did on the cross is he so completely and effectively paid for our sins in the eyes of the Father that the very spirit of Jesus can now dwell within us. One person says, I like this guy over here. I'm just going to focus on him. You people are on your own over here. (laughs) But, you know, one of the most epic passages in all the Bible, I believe, and I have the microphone and you don't, so, that is really not focused on very much, that's really not treated as one of the great epic passages in the Bible, is in John chapter 20. And this is where Jesus first appears to the 12, now 11 disciples after the resurrection. And they see him, and they know the tomb is empty. They know there's something going on, but they're not sure what. Has the body been taken away? What's going on? Could it be that he's actually resurrected from the dead? But all of a sudden, he appears to them. And the first thing he said was peace to you because peace is one of the outstanding characteristics of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, Paul said, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then again, he said to them a second time, peace to you because this, as I said, is just such a great characteristic of anywhere God is at. And I love what Isaiah said about Jesus that his name should be called Emmanuel. And later on, he prophesied there should be no end to his kingdom, no end to the increase of his kingdom. But he also said there'll be no end to the increase of his peace. And as we walk with God and we learn to go deeper and deeper in the ways of God, we experience a greater and greater and greater sense of God's peace that passes all understanding. And we can be going through the worst storms in our life, and there can be this overwhelming sense of the peace that God is in control. And that's something the world cannot have. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you should have tribulation, but peace I give you, a peace that not all the money or popularity or prestige or position in the world can give you. And he said, peace I give to you. But then he did something that had never happened before, He breathed upon the disciples, and the Spirit of the living God came within them. They had already known the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of God upon their lives, 
as they'd gone out two by two and the authority of God cast out demons, preaching the gospel, healing the sick. But now this was something entirely different. This mystery that Paul's referring to of Christ in us is, was actually taking place for the first time in all of humanity. And even what Adam and Eve had before the fall in the Garden of Eden did not compare to that because they were with God, but they were not in God. God was not in them. Seeing is believing, as the saying goes, but I think it's more actually could be said more powerfully that believing is seeing. Faith is the currency of the kingdom of God. And when we dare to believe for things we haven't seen, this currency of the kingdom, it opens up, so to speak, the eyes of our heart. With Thomas, who wasn't there on one of the occasions when Jesus revealed himself, he said, well, I'll believe it when I see it. And then Jesus appeared and he said, Thomas, look at the wound in my side. Look at the, the holes in my, my wrists, you know, because he thought he was seeing a ghost. And said, you see and believe, blessed are those who don't see, but yet believe. Because when we believe, it opens up the eyes of our heart. I think I shared last night, or maybe this morning to the leadership, that great quote of Catherine Coleman, who moves so prolifically in miracles and signs and wonders. She said, the things I don't see are more real to me than the things that I do see, that I see with these eyes. But he breathed upon them, and the Spirit of the living God from that point on began to dwell within them, what we call born again. And this promise of Emmanuel, God with us, is not just drawing near when we worship, although he does manifest his presence and we worship and focus upon him in prayer and call upon his name, but he's with you 24-7 forever. In fact, Paul talked about the seal of salvation is the Spirit of God within us. Uh, there was an apostolic guy based in Indiana that for about three decades he led about uh, 100 churches or more. His name was Cl uh, Chuck Clayton. And I did a couple of conferences for his uh, network of churches and uh, didn't have a real close relationship, but just knew him a bit, ministered, and as I said, a couple of times for him in his conferences. And I got a, a notification about six, seven years ago, a phone call from one of his men that um, Chuck Clayton had passed away, gone home from the Lord, and uh, they were having a big worship celebration celebrating his life, and did I want to come to it? And where Chuck had lived and where his headquarters was was in uh, southeast Indiana, about three hours from where we lived in Dayton. So my wife and I, we, we drove there and got there, and as a church, I could hold a good-sized church, about maybe a 1,000 people, and they must have had seven or 800 people that had come from around the world. Uh, leaders came from as far away as Australia. Leaders came from all over North America. Some leaders came from South America, part of his network, and men and women who had been influenced by his years of apostolic ministry. And I was thinking about this tonight during worship because it was one of the best times of worship I've ever had in my life. For about maybe an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, it was just a wild celebration. And I can remember sitting there or standing there, whatever posture I was in, in the midst of that worship, thinking, you know, if Chuck's family invited maybe a neighbor who knew them but didn't know the Lord, and they came to this memorial service, 
and they're expecting to see a family and few close friends mourning the fact that their father and you know, grandfather is dead, they wouldn't know what to think because it was just wild celebration for about an hour and 15 minutes. You see, they weren't obviously celebrating the fact that he was no longer with them, but they were celebrating the fact that he is in Christ Jesus. And we have a whole different perspective on everything, including death. So Paul said, death, where is your sting? Because of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. And that is the power of the cross. And as Paul said when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, be filled with the Spirit, it was not a suggestion. (laughs) You cannot live a Christ-like life aside from being filled with the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. Every miracle that Jesus did, he could have done by his own sovereign power. All the leading he did as far as where he went, when he went, what he did, what we call words of knowledge about who to heal and how to heal, he could have done that out of his own omniscience as all-knowing, but he didn't. He did that out of the leading of the Holy Spirit. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he came not only as fully God, but he also became fully human. And he subjected himself to the same limitations you and I have. You and I cannot stretch forth our hands and say, in the name of Mark, Ted, Betty, you know, Sarah, whatever your name is, be healed and expect to see things. But Jesus, it says, when he was baptized by John, then the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came upon him. And then it says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he spent those 40 days communing with the Father. And when he came out of the wilderness, it says he was moving, he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He could have done everything he did by his own power, but he lived his life to set a perfect example for us. It says in Hebrews that we have a high priest who can relate to our weaknesses. And so he did what he did out of the strength, the power, the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so he said, if you believe in me, that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, the works that I do, you shall do also. I had a, uh, um, many of you have heard of Jack Deere. He's an incredible theologian. He's just a wonder at the Greek. In fact, he chewed out a friend of mine for trying to explain something in Greek in a meeting he was doing. But uh, Jack explained to me one night, we were having dinner at a conference, and I asked him about uh, a couple of passages in John where Jesus used the word works. For example, when Jesus said, the works that I do, you shall do also. And he said, there's several different words for works that are used in the Greek and the New Testament. But that specific word that Jesus used on that occasion, he said it's only used three times in the New Testament. It's only used uh, in, actually in the Gospel of John. And it refers to works as in miracles, creative power. And so Jesus said, the things that I do in the power of the Holy Spirit, you shall do also. And that is an invitation for us to enter into the lifestyle, the things Jesus did. I told you last night the testimony of we did a miracle conference in Tai Chung a few years ago in Taiwan. 
And one of the testimonies, not from the actual meetings, but just four or five days later, a lady that wasn't part of the ministry team, didn't even regularly pray for the sick, she was a swim hall, and an older gentleman just peeled over, stopped breathing, and they're trying to do resuscitate him, you know, and all that stuff, the people that work there at the swim hall, and the man's dying in front of them, and not having ever done anything like this and feeling awkward, she pushed her way through the crowd, put his, her hand on his chest, and said, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke the spirit of death, and I call you to life, and uh, she's probably read a few good books, I don't know, but the, but the old boy just sat up, completely breathing, completely restored. And here she is, obviously she's at a swim hall, I'm not trying to make a pun on words, but, you know, on the scenario anyway, but most of us, we start out, myself included, years ago, kind of skimming our toes in the shallow end of the pool, she just jumped in the deep end, and there she is. And, and I love that story because I do think we're in a day and age that, you know, we love to look at the testimonies of people like William Branham, Kenneth, Kenneth uh, 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 William Branham, uh, who did I just say? Uh, no, um, uh, no, the, the lady, um, I, pardon me, Catherine Coleman, thank you. But we love to look at these testimonies of men and women that God has used powerfully for miracles, think, oh, man, they just must have been such incredible men and women of God. I remember one time at a conference we were doing, um, it was during a break, and my wife uh, was uh, separated from me, and she was talking with a few women, and some lady walked up to her that she hadn't seen before. I said, oh, Kim DuPont, it's so good to see you. And some lady attending the conference realized she was my wife, and she walked up and said, oh, it must be so wonderful married to Mark DuPont. Is he fasting and praying all the time? My wife said she had to bite her hand, you know, to keep from <laughs> laughing out loud. You know, I, I love what... Uh, the Bible says, for example, about uh, um, my mind, Elijah, you know, a man that prophesied that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, and it didn't rain, and then he prophesied it would rain. The rains came. He called down fire, and it came down and consumed the offering, and he called for, you know, the false priests and prophets of Baal to be killed. You know, God used him so powerfully to bring restoration to Israel, but it says he was a man who had a nature just like us. That means he had strengths, but he also had certain weaknesses. And you can think about the time that, uh, you know, he, he ran back to the city. There's nowhere that says God called him to do that. And he got there, and Jezebel cursed him, and he ran out of fear and ended up in a cave on a mountaintop just in depression, a place of loneliness and fear. And I think some of us can relate at that times. We all have our caves that sometimes we run into and we hide out there. And so we think about, wow, just a man of just incredible faith. And he was a man of incredible faith. He was a man with an incredible anointing upon him. But he was also a human being, just like us, had his strengths and weaknesses. And so as we talk about the miraculous, two things I really want to impress upon you tonight is, one, it comes about because of the Holy Spirit within us. Yes, our faith is the currency of the kingdom. If you've got faith, you can go places and you can do things. But it's all about the spirit of the Lord. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by the spirit of the Lord. But secondly, just like that great army, that flotilla, that rescued those 337,000 troops that everybody had given up on, it's every day men and women 
I think, that God really wants to use. And the great thing is, God is not a respecter of people. He is not a respecter of people. And maybe you're, you know, just a little bit past your teenage years, early 20s, maybe you're 37, 47, 57, 67, 77, 87, you're thinking, well, you know, I've seen too many mistakes, I've seen too much of this, too much of that. Let me tell you, there is an appointed time God has for all of us. And that's the time to start paddling and get that board moving and catch the wave. So, miracles. Where the Spirit is, there is liberty. There is freedom. I go to, uh, one of the cities I go to every year in Europe and the UK is Durham in the northeast of England. Great university there. I think it's the second largest university in England after Oxford. Beautiful small town. Beautiful walking streets, cobblestone, and just a beautiful scenic cathedral and the university itself. But we've seen a lot of healings and miracles there. And one of them that happened, we didn't even know about until about four months after it happened. I was speaking at a weekend conference there. And in one of the Saturday sessions, I was speaking about God breaking demonic strongholds in our mindsets, especially about our self-identity. And I'm speaking about this. I'm not even through with the message yet. But in the middle of the message, the Lord said, I want you to stop the message, and I want you to call up everybody that lives in bondage to shame. And in retrospect, I realized that when someone, there's a stronghold of shame in a person's life, you can preach 24-7 for about three years to them, but the truth of who they are in Christ is going to have a hard time permeating that wall of a terrible self-image. We realize that guilt is realizing you've done something wrong, but shame is something entirely different. Shame oftentimes accompanies guilt, like a hand and glove, but shame is not realizing you've done something wrong, but shame is having deep-rooted, illogical, ill feelings about yourself. It's a stronghold over your self-identity, thinking you're second, third, fourth best, that everybody else is going to have a breakthrough. Everybody else deserves to have a breakthrough. Everybody else is going to be blessed. And as long as that mindset, a stronghold of shame is there, it's very, very difficult to walk in the freedom of God's promises. So the Lord said, call up everybody with shame. I want you to pray for them right now. And how many of you know that if you give an invitation for people to have shame, it's shameful sometimes just to admit that. So I'm kind of wondering, is anybody even going to come forward, you know? But about 20 people came forward, and so I prayed for them, not longer than like three or four minutes. But this is a testimony that was sent into the church by a man who didn't go to the church. He was visiting for the conference. And he said, and he was a man about 35 years old, and he said, all of my life I've lived with shame. I've always thought of myself as just third, fourth class, undeserving, and it's affected every area of my life. And he said it was very difficult for me to publicly respond, even though nobody there really knew me, but he said I came forward. And he said, as I stood there, and he said, I don't go to a church that is normally involved in things like laying on of hands or prophecy or healing, but he said, as I stood there, as you were praying for us, he said, I experienced this burning going on in my head. And uh, he said it was so intense, I put my hand to my head to feel if I could feel my hand, 
and my hand came away hot. I think what was happening was the Holy Spirit was rewiring his synapses and everything, how he thought about himself. You know, thank you. There's a couple of people that are appreciative, but they're all on this side of the room. This is, this is the Pentecostal side. This is kind of like the Baptist. and the, you're, you're like the liturgical people. No, just messing with you. But uh, anyway... Uh, it's interesting what the Holy Spirit can do when we're open to it. I, uh, <laughs> a guy that is extremely prophetic, he's highly involved in arts and media, produces, writes, and directs movies now. Um, when he first came to the Lord in our church many years ago in San Diego, he was about uh, 19 years old. He had literally been doing crystal meth for about six years. His brains were fried. And he'd been saved all of about two weeks. And I got there uh, before church started one Sunday morning. comes up to me and says, listen, I hear you guys talking about reading the Bible and uh, praying. And he said, he said, I've done so many drugs. I've fried my brain. I try to read the Bible, and I can't pay attention for more than two sentences. It's, it's going nowhere for me. Would you pray for me? So where our church was meeting at in those early days, we were in a YMCA room, and I didn't want to pray for him publicly. So whenever we had somebody hot to deal with, like demonic activity, we always took him into the kitchen. So I, I grabbed a couple of guys and said, let's go into the kitchen. So we take him to the kitchen, and we lay hands on him, and I began to pray for God to literally to rewire his brain from all the damage that had been done from all the drugs. And I kid you not, as we began to pray for him, you could, all of us could hear, and the guy himself could hear it, but it was like pouring milk over Rice Krispies. You could hear a snapping, a crackling, a popping going on. And, you know, because we know the brain operates not only in a chemical system, but it's an electrical system. And I believe God was rewiring his, his brain, you know, and all of that. One of the things that they've recently found out is when there's a lot of toxic thinking, including strongholds of shame and a poor self-image and all of that, it causes a growing separation in the synapses. And that's why sometimes you can talk to someone, they may not be drunk or high, but it's difficult to have a logical conversation because there's been so much damage. And the further the synapses get apart from each other, the harder it is for coherent thought to go on. But anyway... Uh, that guy that we prayed for in that kitchen, his whole life was turned around, and six months later, he's leading a home group. He went wild with evangelism, and uh, my wife and I spent about six years uh, mentoring him, but he's ministered all over the world prophetically, and just his life turned around that day because God healed his brain. But anyway, this guy in Durham, you know you're in trouble when someone's preaching to you and you're telling them a story, and they interrupt the story, they tell you another story. You know it's going to be a long night at that point. Just messing with you. But he felt this incredible heat in his head. He took away his hand, and even his hand was hot. And he thought, well, this is weird. And then he turned around to walk back. And he uh, also suffered from MS. And because of his MS and poor circulation in his legs and things, he had uh, neuropathy uh, damage. Uh, um, what's the actual term to the bottom of the feet? Um, neuropathy, uh, but it's a problem with the feet where you get nerve damage at the bottom of your feet and it hurts just to stand and walk. But as he noticed, as he walked back to his seat, his feet weren't hurting at all. 
And then I went back into the message, and I don't know if we prayed for people, but the message ends up, uh, the session came to a close, and we're having a coffee break for the next session. And uh, you do realize you can't have revival without good coffee. <laughs> so one of your challenges is, if you really want to get to revival, you've got to get an espresso machine out there <laughs> with some good roasted coffee. I. I I tell the people in England that the reason they lost the, their worldwide empire is the rest of the world refused to put up with Nescafe. They just said, you know, enough's enough. We're rebelling, you know. But anyway, that's a different message. So we're having a coffee break, and he gets up and to walk out of the sanctuary, and because of his MS, his right foot that had dragged for over 10 years, it was moving perfectly. And... He was in such shock over this. Again, he went to a church that normally didn't move in healings and miracles and this stuff. He thought, it's just, just some weird blip that's happening because maybe I've got some positive thinking. My body's responding. You know, what's going on here? But he waited about two to three months, and then he went to his uh, neurologist, and the neurologist did a lot of testing upon him. And he said, I can't explain this to you, but you no longer have MS. You're completely, it's completely gone. And the man sent his testimony, you know, four months later saying, I'm free. After over 10 or 12 years of serious MS, it's gone. But he said, more importantly, I'm thinking about my life and my future completely differently. Where the spirit is, there's liberty. Now, not all MS, or for that matter, not all diseases are due to psychosomatic, for psychosomatic reasons. Sometimes just bad things happen to good people. Sometimes there's accidents. Sometimes there's unhealthy inheritances and all sorts of things. But in his case, his sickness and disease was tied in to the just years of this stronghold of thinking so bad about himself. But Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so we say we know the truth because we know Jesus is Lord, but have we really allowed the depth of the lordship of Christ to come into, so to speak, every cell of our body? Have we allowed the truth of Jesus to permeate our thinking, how we think about ourselves, how we think about other people, how we think about the world situation we're in? Because as long as we're still thinking about life, uh, reaping and sowing cause and effect based upon the philosophies and the structures of the world, we're going to come up short. God's ways are so different. His ways are above our ways. When you read through the Bible, it's very, very difficult to separate the miraculous from the Bible. From the very beginning in Genesis the creation of the earth, the creation of universe, the six days of creation. Uh, you can think of things like the parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues that God brought against the Egyptian people. You can think about the two different times, about 39 years apart, where they ran, ran out of water and God brought water out of rocks. You can think about the miracles with Elijah, the miracles with Moses, the different prophets, on and on and on. You can think about Jesus, the virgin birth, the resurrection. Your whole, ho your whole hope, whether you're excited about miracles or not, but your whole hope in Christ is based upon the miraculous. What happened to Mary, that young woman, and then the resurrection from the dead. But we look upon the miracles Jesus did. 
We look upon the miracles that the apostles did in the early days church. In fact, in fact, it says in Acts 2.43 that it says, Awe came upon every soul there in the early days church, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We're not all called to be apostles, but we are called to be an apostolic people. We're called to be an apostolic church. We're called to be an apostolic company. And that means moving in the authority of the name of Jesus. Moving in the authority of that name. You know, I mentioned this this morning, but that miracle in Acts 3 that Peter and John did, the lame man outside the temple, everybody knew about that man because for years he had been lame and uh, begging outside the temple. People would walk in the temple, everybody would see him. And yet when Peter and John walked by him on that occasion, said, silver and gold, we have we none, but what we have we give you, stand up and walk in the name of Jesus, and he's healed. It set up an uproar in the city of Jerusalem, and people, it says, went running to Peter and John as if they were gods who had performed this miracle. But Peter and John said, why do you look at us as if we've done this? They said, it is faith in the name of of Jesus that has given this man perfect health. There is life, there is authority in that name, and in that name, his spirit, his presence begins to do things that we can't begin to understand. I think about one miracle we had in a church I worked with a lot in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, A woman who regularly attended our church, about 25 years old, brought her mother in her mid-50s. Her mother had never been to our church. Her mother walked in with two completely blind eyes, walked out with both eyes seen perfectly. But yet nobody prayed for her. Nobody laid a hand on her. There was no word of knowledge that God wants to heal people with bad eyes. But just being there in the presence of the Lord during worship, she was healed. I've seen people in worship meetings healed of cancer. I've seen people healed of paralysis. I've seen people healed... Uh, who are about to have operations and different things. And when we go further than that and we get the leading of the Holy Spirit for healings and miracles, signs and wonders, there are absolutely no limitations whatsoever. I uh, think I was telling the story last night about the young woman in Toronto. She and her family had immigrated from Egypt to Toronto about six years ago, and she's living with the most painful disease known to modern medicine, and there is no known cure for it, and she'd been suffering this for a year and a half in just absolute pain, but yet uh, now about a year and a half ago, she came to the meetings I was doing in March of 2018, prayed for her, and five days later, she ends up having a meeting with God 100% completely healed. This is not only the most painful disease known to medicine, but there is no known cure. Aren't you grateful that one of the names of God is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord God who heals? And I love what it says in Psalm 103, that God not only forgives us of our iniquities, but he heals us of all of our afflictions. Now, anytime we talk about healings and miracles, especially when we quote that verse that God heals us of all of our afflictions, I believe it's very, very important that we be transparent, that we be candid about this, that not every single person that we pray for to be healed do we see healed, at least in the time frame we pray for them. 
when it comes to prophecy, when it comes to healings and miracles, there is always a mystery involved. I love those occasions and those meetings where someone, and a lot of times they're not even people who know the Lord, the first time they ever come to a meeting and they may have a sickness or disease, they're prayed for, they're instantly healed. I love that, but it doesn't always work out that way. Um, we have an uh, amazing testimony that happened a number of years ago in a church called Vision Christian Church in Canberra, Australia. And I want to tell you this story. It's a little bit involved. But way back in 1999, a young woman married and had two young kids. She was a teacher, I believe. They lived in a different city in Australia. Very unexpectedly, she came down very quickly with severe uh, lupus. And if you're familiar with lupus, it can cause intense pain in all the joints. And <clears throat> just within a year and a half, two years, the pain got so bad she could no longer work. She had to quit her job, and now they're kind of living on just one income, a little bit of disability coming in. But the pain got so increasingly bad she could no longer clean in the house. She could no longer cook, no longer help take care of the kids. And so her husband, he had to take another part-time job to pay the bills. And on top of that, uh, you know, he's having to do a lot of the housework. And then he just spun out of control. And about two years into it, he left her for another woman and left her with the two kids. So she had some friends and family members in Canberra. She needed help. And so she moves to Canberra. And I think it was 2001, she's going to a meeting in Canberra, and they had a, a prophetic guy ministering there. And he's prophesying over people, and he points to her, and he said, God has heard your prayers, and your prayer is going to be answered when you hear the Lord say these words to you, receive your healing. So she's thinking, great, this can only mean one thing. God's going to heal me of lupus because she's been praying and praying and praying and praying. But she did not hear the Lord say those words, receive your healing. That week, that month, that year, it wasn't until 2008. I was there in, in that church in Canberra doing some meetings, and we were praying for the sick, and the Lord gave me a word to pray for everybody with bone problems, joint problems. And so she came up for that. And there were about maybe 30 or 40 people standing in line. I'm going down the line praying for them all. And she said, you prayed. I could, I could hear you praying for people about five or six people away. Then you got to me. And when you prayed for me, you looked at me and you said something that you didn't say to any of their people. And in fact, this is something I almost never say. But I said to her, in the name of Jesus, receive your healing. She was just living in constant pain in her joints. That second, all the pain disappeared from her body. She went running around the room, you know, just, you know, just beside herself. Have you ever thought about that phrase, beside yourself? You know, it means you're acting so strangely that you take a step outside of yourself and you say, what in the world are you doing? But she was just beside herself, running around the room, and her pastor, who knew about the condition, Peter Thompson, he, he goes up and says, what's going on? And she says, I'm healed. And she explains the whole story Then in 2001, she'd been there at the church, and they'd had a prophetic guy, and he'd said these words, when you hear the Lord say, receive your healing, you'll be healed. And I just got prayed for, and, I, and the, the Mark said those words. 
And he looks at it and says, well, <clears throat> what's bizarre is that prophetic guy who was speaking in 2001, he's here in Canberra this weekend. He didn't have a meeting tonight, and he's sitting in the back of the crowd. And so the pastor went and got him and brought her up, and they told the testimony. And, you know, we think, wow, you know, some people we pray for right away, they're healed, and even some non-Christians immediately get healed. Here's a woman that believed in Jesus, was <clears throat> trying to serve him and walk in faithfulness, not getting healed. There's, there's a mystery involved. And God had an appointed time for her, just like in everything good for you and my life, God has an appointed time. In contrast to that, in north of England, an area of, or north of London, an area called Harrow, we were doing meetings several years ago, and a guy in the worship team, he had met this uh, uh, girl in a coffee shop and uh, just got talking with her, and... Um, he found out that she had uh, severe Crohn's disease. She'd had it since she was 13 years old for about eight years. It affected every area of her life. <clears throat> if you understand about Crohn's disease, you understand. If you don't, we won't go into details. We'll just say it powerfully and painfully affects the bowels <laughs> and the intestines and the colon. And she had such severe Crohn's disease, she was unable to go very far from her house the diagnosis was she was never going to be able to have a job unless she worked from home. Uh, she was never going to just, just a lot of limitations in life and constant discomfort and never knowing when things were going to get out of hand. And she went once a week to a clinic to receive uh, special medication. Well, he tells he, uh, about a few weeks later, we're having these meetings, there were a lot of healings happening. So after the second night, he calls her up and he says, listen, I know you don't go to church. I know you're not a Christian, but we're seeing God do healings and miracles in my church. Would you be willing to come Sunday night? And so she said, sure. And her name is B. She came to the meetings. She'd never been in a church, church kind of like yours, you know, people lifting their hands during worship, singing loudly. And she never went to church, period. But she's thinking, wow, this is different. And then she sits through the message, and then sure enough, wouldn't you know it, the Lord gave me a word of knowledge to pray for people with Crohn's disease. She came up, not really understanding, you know, just this whole dynamic of Christ within us, this mystery. And she felt like there was a burning sensation going on in her lower stomach. She took heavy medication every morning, every night. She got home that night. She decided not to take it. And for the first night in many, many years, she just had a great night. Never had to get up, never anything uncomfortable happening. She decided to, not, to try not take her medication that morning, and she went through a perfect day, no problems whatsoever. The whole week went by. She ended up not going to her clinic for medication. They're calling her up because people at the clinic had been treating her since she was like a 13-year-old girl saying, B, what's going on? She's saying, I'm okay, I'm okay. But they're thinking, B, you know, you need this medication. She waited a full year, and then she went back to the clinic, and they walked, she walks in, they recognize it. B, what's going on? Where have you been? What's going on? Have you been going to a different clinic? Did you move? <coughs> and she said, I'm healed. And they all said, well, what did you do? Did you just, like, drink carrot juice for... What, what's going on? How, how did this happen? 
And she said, I was prayed for in the name of Jesus. And she said, I am 100% completely free. And you think about what that means to her. She, you know, just opening up her life and everything else. B also gave her life to the Lord Jesus that night. And she got going with the church. She was a musician. She got going with the worship team. And I was just in Harrow, I think, in September of last year. And she goes to a different church now. But she came and gave her testimony. And she said, I'm now going to a ministry school. And I'm studying to be a, a worship leader. I'm being trained to be a worship leader. Her whole life was turned around just by that one night, that one encounter with Christ. But in contrast, sometimes we see people in faithfulness, walking with the Lord, walk with the Lord. Why am I suffering this? Why is this going on? But seeing is believing or is believing seeing. When we believe and we believe and we believe, faith is currency in the kingdom of God. I love what uh, it says in Hebrews 11.6 that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those who seek God must not only believe that he is, but he is also a rewarder of those who seek him. So in your life, as you read the word of God, you meditate on the goodness of God, you go to church, you worship and things like that, we're not doing it out of ritual. We're not doing it because we've got to do it. Got to do it. We're doing it because it's a privilege. We get to do it. And when we draw near to the Lord, as the Bible says in both the Old and New Testament, he draws near to us. And as we press in upon the Lord, it doesn't always happen, as I've said, exactly in our time frame, but he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He rewards us. He blesses us. And sometimes, as I said last night, like Joseph that went through all those years of imprisonment and even slavery through no fault of his own, we're wondering, why are these things happening? Everybody else seems to be getting the breakthrough. Why is my breakthrough so far away? Could it be that like Joseph, or like David, who through no fault of his own had to run for his life for years, could it be that God's preparing you for a certain period of time in your life of great effectiveness, but you would not be able to walk effectively in that season of effectiveness if you didn't learn the lessons along the way? Now it's the people back there that are excited, so... We don't like to hear that. We, we, we like to hear that, you know, we can just watch a DVD, you know, or watch a podcast and we'll just integrate all this stuff. But, you know, the reality is the values of the kingdom, they're not so much taught as they're caught. They're things that as you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and you walk with the people of God, things begin to rub off on you. You pick things up. I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, but we hear something amazing, like a testimony of someone else had a breakthrough. Oh, I'm going to do that, or I'm going I'm to grab that truth and make this part of my life. But that's really not how it works. It's how as we walk with the person of God and the people of God, experiencing this mystery of Christ within us, that everything just begins to happen. Two, uh, maybe, what was it, three weekends ago, I was with a church in Missoula, Montana, 
and we had, it was a leadership conference, we had people come from different churches in Missoula, we had people come from, uh, I think it's pronounced Helena, Montana, we had people come from Spokane, Washington, from all over the place, and uh, we had a great time, but we had a lot of healings that happened, particularly one night. And uh, I had said that on the second night I was going to speak about healing, and that's what I did. And we prayed for a lot of people, had a lot of words of knowledge. But towards the end of the meeting, as I'm getting ready to go, a lady walked up to me, in her, I think in her early 70s, and she said, uh, would you pray for me? And she said, I have suffered migraine-type headaches every day for the last 40 years. If you've ever had even two or three days in a row of an intensive headache, you know that's debilitating. But can you imagine 40 years? And, you know, I'm a little bit worn out, you know. I had um, done a conference in Seoul, Korea, and flown straight from Seoul to <coughs> Missoula or Montana, where we were. And, uh, you know, I've got jet lag and kind of meeting out. And we just had prayed for at least 100, 150 people. And... She comes up, and I'm thinking, man, you know, she's been suffering this 40 years. I don't know if I'm, I'm feeling that kind of faith. But, you know, Jesus said, if you just have faith the size of a mustard seed, it's not so much about what you feel or even so much what you're thinking at the time. It's this mystery of Christ in you. It's the Holy Spirit that heals. It's the Holy Spirit that delivers. It's the Holy Spirit coming into a person's life that saves. It's the Holy Spirit that he, when he convicts, our ways of thinking change, and he gives us a grace for repentance. But I saw the woman really had faith. So I prayed, and not that long a prayer. Well, she came back the next night, Saturday night, and she also came back uh, Sunday morning, and she testified that that next day was the, literally the first day in over 40 years, no headache whatsoever. And that Sunday was the second day, <laughs> completely free. There's, uh, there's a number of diseases, kind of like Crohn's disease, and again, we don't need to publicly go into uh, the details of Crohn's disease. But there was a man that same night, as we said, we are going to pray for stomach problems. He came up and got prayer. And for a number of years, I think over seven or eight years, um, he had a, a type of Crohn's, but not exactly Crohn's, that valve movements were extremely painful for him. And he normally would have them every morning, but they would cause so much pain that afterwards he had to lay down on his bed just for uh, two or three hours. The pain was just excruciating. And he came forward that night and got prayer for his stomach. The next morning, for the first time in those seven or eight years, he had a normal bowel movement, no problems whatsoever. And a day and a half later, he was, he was continuing on that track. And we look at things like this, and we think, you know, wow, you know, this is so wonderful. And it is wonderful, but it's not supposed to be exceptional. It's wonderful, but it's not supposed to be exceptional. You see, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul said, God, who not only gives us the Holy Spirit, he works miracles in our midst. And whenever you read a promise in the Bible that does not seem like it's being fulfilled in your life, 
I can authentically 100% guarantee you that the problem is not with God. You see, he's not a man that he should lie. And Paul said every promise in the Bible is yes and amen. Do you know there's some 3,000 promises of blessings in the Bible? Before you get too excited about that, there's over 1,700 directive words as well. So it kind of balances that out a little bit. But there's over 3,000 verses or promises of blessing the Bible. And the Apostle Paul said because of what Christ Jesus did on the cross, they're all yes and amen for those who are in Christ. And you see, if you have this mystery of Christ within you, all of a sudden you're wide open for the kingdom of God because wherever the king is, the kingdom is there. And wherever the kingdom is, there's always opportunities for healings and miracles because the things that are impossible for man are never difficult for God. The things impossible for man are never difficult for God. So when the kingdom of God is moving on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray, one way of thinking about that is the realm of the always possible is invading the realm of the impossible. And it's not just physical healings that miracles pertain to. Maybe you've been trapped in a, in a job situation or you've been trapped in this or that. All of a sudden, God can open up doors for you that no one can shut. Um, when my wife and I lived in Dayton, Ohio, we had the coolest home group. It was invitation only um, <laughs> for very good reason. <laughs> but we would meet twice a month, and I would miss along because I traveled, but here's what we would do. Not everybody that came, and I'm not saying we selected people for this reason alone, but almost everybody who came were gourmet cooks. And so <laughs> you can see where this is going, don't you? So when we would meet twice a month, uh, a different couple or individual in the home group would be responsible for food that night. And we'd have different themes, like it could be Greek food, it could be Indian food, it could be something really righteous like steak or something like that, <laughs> barbecue. But, uh, you know, we would always have these great meals. And so the first 90 minutes of our home group were just completely dedicated to fellowship and whining. No, I didn't say that. But uh, to dining together. And let's just say we had communion. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. And we had so much fun. Then after 90 minutes, we would meet at our house. Pe other people that cooked would bring the food. They would, uh, we'll just edit that stuff from the tape. I don't know where this message will end up at, you know. But uh, then we'd go in from the dining room and the kitchen area where people would be sitting eating. Uh, we'd go into the, the living room. And uh, I would sometimes maybe just share like a, a, just a 10-minute thing. And then I'd say, right, what's everybody going through? And out of the seven or eight couples and uh, individuals that came, inevitably there'd be someone that'd be going through a really challenging time or something would come up and we'd all pray into that and we'd have a brief time of worship. And, and it was just a whole lot of fun. But there was one couple, and this guy was not just a gourmet chef. He was a culinary professor at a local university. 
I loved it when it was his turn to cook. It was amazing what we'd have. But he was the, uh, the how should I put it, the, the next to the highest ranking uh, culinary chef in the whole sh uh, culinary department. And the guy that was head of the culinary department hated him. And the guy that in, was in charge of the whole culinary department actually made lies and false accusations against him several times for completely bogus reasons. My friend was brought up on disciplinary things and had to defend himself. And this went on for about four years. But we would pray and we would pray. His name was Frank. And not every time, but from time to time, he'd say, you know, you guys know what I'm going through. I'm just being overwhelmed by this or this latest charge or accusation has come and blah, 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 blah. And so we'd quite often we would, uh, whoever we were praying for would sit in the center of the living room. We'd all lay hands and pray and all of that. Well, he got there, he and his wife, Denise, and he said, I want to tell you what happened. And it had been uh, found out um, through an audit that the head of the department had been stealing some of the funds. And the police came in. And not only did the police come in, but the heads, uh, the dean and assistant dean, investigated the whole thing going on in that department. And our friend Frank was not only exonerated, but he was apologized to for having to face all the stuff he went through and came into a nice promotion. So, so God has an appointed time. And Frank, at times, he and Denise had been so discouraged, he had seriously considered quitting, moving on. And he had several job opportunities to work with great restaurants or work with other universities, possibly moving to Atlanta and other areas. But as we'd pray for him, we all sensed and we'd say to him, you know, Frank, we believe the Lord just wants you to, he's going to walk you through this. And not that they would just blindly obey those words, but they would take those words, he and his wife would pray through, and they'd say, yeah, we, we think you're right. And it was a very difficult, discouraging time for him, but the faithfulness of God came through, and he came into the appointed time, the breakthrough for that. The last story I want to tell you about a miracle has to do with um, I probably have told you this story here before. Um, it's a couple in, my, in that church in Dayton. I didn't know them very well. I'd prayed for them once years before about something with one of their daughters. But uh, I found out from one of the pastors in the church that they were going through divorce. And uh, I saw the guy in uh, the foyer of our church in between services Sunday and walked up and I said, hey, I heard there's some problems in the marriage. And he said, yeah, my, my wife found out I was doing some things I should not have been doing. And it triggered some things from her childhood. And uh, that's it. She wants a divorce. I said, is there any hope for counseling? He said, no. He said, she's done with me. That's it. They got a divorce, and she started going to another church. And after six months, decided she wanted to come back to our church. But we had three services in the weekend. So she just came to a different service than her, than her ex did. But they made a mistake. They both showed up at the same Monday night prayer meeting. We went through about a two-month period where we had uh, prayer meetings five nights a week. And uh, it was one of those Monday nights where maybe, I don't know, 50 or 60 of us there praying. And uh, Pat, the husband, uh, he's, they were all sitting up front in the sanctuary, and some people were kneeling down by the altar as we're praying. And uh, I needed a coffee, hallelujah, so I walked out in the foyer where we had some good coffee going, got myself a cup of coffee, and walking back in, 
And as Matuk walked back in, his ex-wife Rebecca walks in. And I didn't know her well at all. I just said hi. She said hi, and she walks in. And she walks in the back door of the sanctuary. She sees her ex, Pat, kneeling down at the front praying, and she's angry that he's there. And so she wanted to leave, but she had literally that evening been driving home from work, and the Lord said, turn your car away, uh, turn your car around. I want you to go to church to the prayer meeting. So she came to the prayer meeting, but she sees her ex there. She's angry. So she sits in the very back row. Now, this is a sanctuary that could hold about 1,200 people. So if you've got about 60 people sitting up front, you're sitting in the very back row. You know, you've got about a half mile between you. And she's sitting there like this, you know, just scowling, arms crossed. And I walked by, I just said, well, praise God she's here, you know. But uh, as I'm walking up to the front, the Holy Spirit began to start speaking some things to me. Not a lot, but just a little bit. Now, at that time in my history with this couple, Pat and Rebecca, I did not know that at one time Pat had been a military policeman. Otherwise, I never would have done what I did. I walked up where he's kneeling. I grabbed him by the wrist and said, come with me. And I dragged him to the very back, and I said, sit down next to Rebecca. Or I said, your ex-wife. I'm not even sure I knew her name. He reluctantly sits down. You've all heard the phrase, if looks could kill. If looks could kill, he would have been dead first than me very shortly afterwards. <laughs> She's furious. But now the Holy Spirit's really beginning to speak to me. And I said to him, the Lord says to you, join your hands together. And I don't, <clears throat> I think it had to have been the anointing because she was so angry. But reluctantly, they joined their hands together. And now the Holy Spirit really began to speak to me. And I said to him, this is what the Lord says to you. The two of you have bought into a lie from the pits of hell and you believe what's impossible for you is also impossible for God. I said, I break that lie in the name of Jesus, and I call your hearts back to your first romance in the name of Jesus. They looked at me, and then they looked at one another. They began to start weeping, and they spent the rest of the prayer meeting weeping and hugging each other. They went through about nine months of counseling, and uh, Pat did counseling on his own, working on some of the issues, leading to some of the things he had done that had uh, really devastated her. But she also went through some counseling on her own, some of her childhood issues that had been triggered when Pat had fallen into his stuff. But they also went into counseling the two of them together. And at this point, because it's a remarriage, I don't know whether you would call it pre-marriage or post-marriage counseling, but they <laughs> went through it. And and, and at the, about nine months, and actually I didn't know it until later, but it was actually Pat's birthday, I remarried them in the backyard of Pat's house. And we had about uh, uh, 200 people from the church here now because it was just such an amazing thing. Now, uh, one of the great, amazing, epic, wild differences between men and women is how we view marriage. Not marriage, but marriage ceremonies. I'm a typical male. I begin to manifest at weddings. And this is how I manifest. I start looking for a watch on my hand. Gee, it's getting late. Can we leave now? And especially if he's ever doing the ceremony, if they go longer than five minutes, I'm just thinking, good Lord, you know. We're in this hot, stuffy room with all these stuffy people and this stuffy service and wearing these stuffy clothes. You know, just get me out of here, Jesus, you know. But... That wedding was so wild, 
And uh, um, about a week before the wedding, because as you can imagine, I don't do that many marriage ceremonies. I can't imagine why more people don't ask me, but <laughs> there we go. But I, I sit down with Pat and Rebecca and I, a week before, and I said, okay, how are we doing this marriage ceremony? How many bridesmaids, how many groomsmen? And Rebecca said, well, we want to do something different. And uh, as it turns out, this was actually counting her first marriage to Pat. This is her third marriage. When she had married Pat the first time, she had two daughters, eight and ten years old. And in the eight years of that first marriage with Pat, her daughters never liked Pat, never honored him, would never call him dad, would never obey him. And she said, Mark, as she told me the story, in the last nine months, as God has re-knit, Pat and my heart, are my heart together, God has done a miracle in my daughters as well. And they have fallen in love with Pat, and they are now calling him dad. And she said, Mark, our daughters have asked if they can stand on either side of us in the marriage ceremony because they want to testify to everybody there how God has healed our family. So that's what we did. And the two girls, they took a few moments and they testified about how their whole family had come back together in Christ Jesus. Now, as I say this, I'm very aware there's probably uh, some people here that may have gone through a brutal, uh, a brutal divorce and, you know, and maybe it's painful to talk about that. But I don't say, tell this story to condemn anybody, but just to say that situations that we consider absolutely impossible are never impossible for God. And this is why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, there is no divorce. There is no depression. There is no diabetes. There is no cancer. There is no epilepsy. There is no lameness. In heaven, everything is operating at about 10,000%. Everything is full on. And so when we take seriously these words about when we pray, our Father, who art in heaven, holy be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth that is in heaven. And when we realize we are free in the love of the Father to seek first the kingdom and all these things will then be given to us, we're not just seeking more people to get into the doors of the church. We're not just trying to build a club. We're not just in some weird popularity contest with the devil. But we're here to bring a whole quality of life that is not there outside of the mystery of Christ in us. It's not just the hope of going to heaven, although that's incredible. But as Paul talked about these three mysteries... This last mystery he talked about was this mystery of Christ in us. God Almighty, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the lamb of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the only begotten son of God, his very presence, Emmanuel, with us, in us, and us in him. And in this kingdom, the things that are so often impossible for us, are never difficult for him. Are you still alive? What about the people on this side of the room? Okay, good. I, I saw a few nods over there. So, Let's stand. Could I have the uh, piano player or keyboard player uh, come on up? Uh,
And if you could just play softly on that. So we want to do two things tonight. Um, your pastor, Mark, uh, implored me to take a second offering. <laughs> no, no, we're not going <laughs> to. I could tell you some funny offering stories. <laughs> we were doing a series of meetings in Baltimore and just having phenomenal times in worship. And the pastor asked me at one of the meetings if I would, quote, take up the offering, you know. Not take an offering, but take up an offering. And uh, the, the primary worship leader of that church, he was a, a former professional uh, jazz musician. He played the saxophone. And he was great at arranging, and he himself didn't sing, but he was the overall worship pastor. And so I want to do something different. As the team led worship, I had them come and get some huge baskets and put them at the bottom of the stage. And I asked the worship pastor to come and play the saxophone over it to celebrate that we have the freedom to give to God. So I talked about this, about uh, not coming for God empty-handed and celebrating his goodness. And I go back, and I'm standing in the front near the pastors, and there's like an empty seat, like right where they are. And people are starting to come forward, and there's this commotion. Someone jumps over the seat from the second row forward, and he's laughing, and he comes, and he um, empties out his wallet, and just all, everything that's in, I don't know how much was in, maybe there was only a dollar. It looked dramatic anyway. He empties out his wallet, just shakes it over there, and he's laughing. He goes and climbs back over the seat, sits down, and I said, well, the, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. A moment later, he jumps back over the seat, and this time he takes his wallet with credit cards and everything and throws it within. Goes back, and he's laughing again. A few minutes later, comes up laughing again, and this time he's got his wife's purse. <laughs> now, I don't know if, if you're a man here and you're married, what your wife has in your purse, but sometimes, you know, there could be bricks, there could be Uzi machine guns, there could be all sorts of things. It's, it's just like this bottomless pit. This is the fourth mystery Paul should have written about, the mystery of what can fit into a woman's purse. But he comes up with his wife's purse and just dumps everything you know, and I'm thinking, well, I hope there's nothing weird in there. But anyway, and obviously the church gave back the contents of the prayers, gave him back his credit cards and all that. But, uh, you know, he was just so gone in wanting to celebrate the goodness of the Lord. Makes me want to take up an offering. No. But we're going to do two things tonight. Um, I want to pray for those of you that you have a heart's desire for you yourself to be used by God to release healings and miracles. And I know there's many of you here that you've been moving powerfully in healing and miracles for years, but <clears throat> a promise Jesus gave us in Matthew 25, verse 29, is those who have, more shall be given, and you shall have an abundance. You know, I, I, by the grace of God, I've been seeing God do miracles for 40 years now, but something to pray all the time, oh God, would you give me a real abundance for seeing a freedom for the miraculous. And so no matter how advanced you are with the things of God, there's always more that God has for you. I like this guy over here. I'm just going to pray for him tonight. The rest of you are on your own. But the, the other thing is we are, we're definitely going to pray for some sicknesses. <coughs> I've mentioned stomach problems and 
You might not have Crohn's disease or intestinal issues, but maybe you've got liver or kidney problems. Maybe you've got pancreatic problems. Maybe you've got uh, digestive issues. Maybe you've got severe food allergies. Uh, you could have a number of things. We're going to pray for stomach conditions tonight. And I also want to pray for knee problems, hip problems, feet problems tonight as well. And then a third category, we may pray for other things, but a third category I want to pray for is possibly you have a disease or a sickness that can only be treated by doctors, cannot be healed, meaning you have some sort of manageable disease. What's difficult or impossible for man is never a challenge for God. And so you could have a form of cancer, you could have MS, you could have epilepsy, you could suffer from seizures, you could suffer from uh, pancreatic diabetes, where you're just on continual medication to treat it, to manage it, but there's no hope of being cured of that. But that is never an issue for God. So the third category we want to pray for tonight is for people that have any sort of serious neurological disease or cancer or diabetes. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, stage three or stage four terminal. It could just be minor something. Maybe you've got some ongoing battles with skin cancer. I'd like to pray for that as well. But uh, let's just uh, lift our hands to the Lord right now. And would you pray out loud after me? Father God, just as Isaiah said, here am I. Would you send me? Would you send me in the power of your compassion that the lame may walk, the deaf may hear, the blind may see, the sick and disease be healed? In the amazing name of Jesus, would you anoint me, little old me, to lay hands on the sick, that your kingdom would move on earth as it is in heaven? Now just lift your hands to the Lord, just a little bit softer. Just lift your hands to the Lord right now, and right where you're at, I bless you right now to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. I love this church. Even the sound people and the cameramans got their hands up receiving from the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. And I realize your whole church is not nearly here, but there's enough of you here to just release a tidal wave of something fresh into the church. I can see the power of God coming upon many of you right now. Just close your eyes and take in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just right here in the name of Jesus. Just be filled in the name of Jesus. Just be filled with the power of the Holy Ghost right there. Just be filled in the name of Jesus. I can see the Holy Spirit resting upon so many of you right now. Take in the Spirit of the Lord. Take in the Spirit of the Lord right there in the name of Jesus. Be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. More. 